Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 12, an Old Testament survey from Abraham to modern Israel. This is the end of the series. Well, today we are going to conclude our 12-week biblical survey from Abraham to modern Israel. So let's just jump right into this thing. We are now up to the 18th century. And by the start of the 18th century, the Jewish people were dispersed all over Eastern and Western Europe. But the nature of this dispersion was unlike centuries earlier when they tended to stay clustered in communities or ghettos of sufficient size to maintain their unique Jewish lifestyle and traditions. At the same time, pass down Torah and Talmud teachings. Well, by now, a single Jewish family might migrate to a typical European Christian village and be the only Jewish presence there. The Jews were now spread thin throughout Europe, a mile wide and an inch deep, as they say. The lack of Talmud scholars caused a severe weakening now of the Jewish religious education. Many Jews were less interested now in being separate, much more interested in being accepted into mainstream European societies. So Judaism was in disarray. Positions of Jewish religious authority could be bought and sold. Formal training was no longer required to be a rabbi. A man simply had to be at least 20 years of age and decide that would be his vocation. Into this weakened religious structure walked a very interesting Jewish man who wished to restore the piousness and the separateness to Judaism. His name was Israel ben Eliezer. Now this mystical faith healer brought a a new vision to Polish Jewry and he formed the Hasidic Jewish movement first seen as a, a pretty radical sect and his stated intent was to restore purity to Judaism of course it was a purity that reflected his definition of what purity embodied now Whatever unity remained among these scattered Jews was now destroyed, as was the rabbinical authority that had been the religious governing body and the rudder of Jewish society for more than 1,500 years. By the start of the 19th century, three-quarters of a million Jews lived in Poland, and they made up at least 10% of its population. It was about this time that we see European Jews moving towards a more secular culture. That is to say, up to this time, their God, their religion, their culture, even the long lost land of Israel, these things were all fused together as one for them. Inseparable. And this was in order to define their their identity. Over the past centuries, even before the the birth and death of Jesus Christ, millions of Jews had been martyred rather than give up any element of their faith. In the 19th century Europe, this was no longer the case, as the continent was now deep into a period that we know today we call the Enlightenment. 
The Enlightenment began early in the 18th century and it brought about a wave of philosophers and academics and intellectuals that sought to take away this underlying religious foundation of European life and government that they viewed now as oppressive and much too restrictive. And they wanted to replace it with their view of the rational and the logical. It was basically warmed over Roman or better Hellenistic pagan philosophy, but with all sense of spirituality and the supernatural removed from it. Voltaire, Kant, Hume, Rousseau, these were the vanguard of, of this movement. Enlightenment philosophy has evolved into the secular humanism that pervades our planet. It is called secular because it abandons the notion that there's anything of supernatural origin or anything greater than man. And humanism, because all of mankind's hopes for, for progress is based on scientific knowledge, new technologies, the power of our minds to define morality for ourselves as societies and as individuals. Without doubt, it is the Jews who have suffered under the philosophy of secular humanism more than any other identifiable people group on this planet. Well, Europe rapidly embraced the mantras of the Enlightenment philosophers, but none of them, perhaps, had such a lasting influence on Jews and on the world, really, in general, than Voltaire. He was the most virulent sort of anti-Semite. He also detested the Christian church as much as he despised the Jews. His grand vision was to bring about a world society that was Greek culture brought back to life. His vision was that he saw Jews as inherently evil, as a freak of nature. They polluted Europe with their irrational beliefs, moral absolutism and antiquated traditions. To Voltaire, they were subhuman. Alien beings incapable of rehabilitation. His views became the primary lens through which Europeans viewed the Jews all through the period of the Enlightenment. These feelings were not universal, however, and, and many in Europe questioned whether Jews were without human worth. But somehow, these ideas of a human's inherent right to individual freedoms and these anti-Jewish beliefs coexisted during the Enlightenment in such a way that the Jews actually gained emancipation. First in France, then in Spain, eventually in Poland. And, and this inclusion into mainstream European society was sufficient cause in itself for the Jews to embrace the path of the Enlightenment and secular humanism. But the price for their newfound freedoms and societal acceptance was very high. Jews were by now emigrating to North and South America, to England. They became bankers and lawyers and business leaders. Their Jewishness came with them incognito, 
not to be displayed or revealed until maybe they were well entrenched in their social and political and business lives. They changed their names to hide their identities. Their goal was to blend in. To blend in with the wealthy, with the aristocrats, almost all, of course, of Christian persuasion. In time, they would provide as incubators for more traditional Jewish life to reemerge and as a source of welcome for other Jewish wanderers. Jews no longer looked upon Christianity as an enemy religion, but rather as an acceptable, uh, uh, understandable faith, but only for Gentiles. The Jews had willingly given up their Messiah to the Gentiles in exchange for societal acceptance, for economic freedom. Remarkably, even the deep desire that they had that burned in the heart of every Jew's or rather, in every Jew's heart was for an eventual return to their homeland. Well, by 1850, nearly two and one-half million Jews had relocated to Russia. Within 50 years, that number would double. For the Russians, the Jews were just an uncomfortable enigma. They had no idea what to do with these strange foreigners. The Russians were historically suspicious of strangers. They were afraid of these Jews' Western ways, their their alien traditions. The paranoid Russia that we see today had its roots 200 years ago. See, the history of the Jews in Russia is one of segregation, alienation, and persecution. Early in the 1800s, the czars and the noblemen of Russia, they saw the Jews as a problem. Their preference was Jewish expulsion because they feared that if they tried to assimilate the Jews, they might just try to take over the motherland. Yet the Jews had come to represent such a sizable portion of the Russian economy that expulsion would mean serious degradation of their society, kind of like the Egypt scenario all over again. The first solution, therefore, was not just simply not to allow them to scatter. Rather, it was decided to restrict their movement. They were confined mostly to an area near the Baltic Sea. The Jews were issued permits to live in other areas if the Russian royals could find a reason that was favorable for them. Well, in 1812, the French monarch Napoleon attacked Russia with 500,000 troops. France had emancipated her Jews, so the Russian Jews, guess what they did? Well, they welcomed Napoleon, hoping for liberation. Early on in the war, it looked like Russia was well on its way to becoming French territory. Napoleon's troops burned Moscow to the ground. But courageously, the Russians responded by burning all the grain fields that the French army was relying upon for food for their troops who were so very far from home. The French army was then caught in a brutal Russian winter without shelter and now without food, far beyond their own supply lines. They retreated. 20% 
of the French army arrived back in France. Russia remained sovereign. But now Russia reacted with vengeful bitterness towards these treasonous Jews who had welcomed Napoleon. Beginning about 1825, Jewish men and boys from the ages of 12 to 25 were drafted to rebuild the decimated Russian army. The term of mandatory service was 25 years. And in 1844, the Russian government instituted a candle tax. And it was applied only to candles used by Jews for religious purposes, such as Shabbat candles. Next, there was a tax on kosher meat. Only kosher meat. In 1855, under a new czar, these taxes and restrictions were somewhat eased. That's because there was a desperate need now throughout Russia for scholars and teachers and accountants. The Jews had many of these in their own communities. The Jews that held these occupations were suddenly allowed to live anywhere they wanted to in Russia. In 1861, the Russian feudal system, whereby the peasants belonged to the land, was dismantled throughout Tsarist Russia. Western Enlightenment philosophy, science, culture was introduced. The Russian army service term was, was trimmed from the 25 years to four. Jews were allowed to join mainstream society and they became writers and painters and sculptors and journalists and poets and their works were surprisingly acceptable to the native Russians. But all was not well. Many within Russia were alarmed and they were disgusted at this new era of tolerance for Jews. Among them was Karl Marx. Karl Marx led open literary attacks against the Jews. In 1881, Tsar Alexander II was blown up by a bomb. The new Tsar blamed the Jews, which was a complete fabrication. A tidal wave of anti-Semitism just swept over Russia. All of the old restrictions and persecutions reappeared. And it culminated with the words of the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Christian Church who delighted predicted that one-third of these Jews will die one-third will be converted to Christianity and one-third will just flee he wasn't very far off the mark about 1880 a book was published that purported to examine this problem of worldwide Jewry, and it proposed a solution. In short, the, the author, Leon Pinsker, stated that the Gentile world was never going to accept Jews into the existing societies. Jews were too different. They were too difficult to assimilate. And as too many Jews would wander into one country or another, it was, there was some natural point at which that nation became alarmed and then the persecutions would begin. The only viable and permanent solution was the establishment of a Jewish homeland. It didn't have to be the former Holy Land. Anywhere would do. 
Well, Zionist movements started to spring up everywhere. Zionists, you see, were groups of grand, uh, that, that had this grand vision of returning the Jews to their homeland, of reestablishing the nation of Israel. The Bible uses the term Zion many times in reference to Israel. The Holy Land, called Palestine, since the end of the Second Jewish Rebellion in 135 AD, was now under the control of the Turkish Ottoman Empire. In other words, of Muslims. The several Zionist movements were grassroots. They had no political connections. They had no idea how to achieve permission from proper channels to set up trial Jewish settlements in Palestine. So with the backing of Baron Rothschild, who was a very wealthy Jew, they attempted to establish some Jewish agricultural villages in unpopulated and barren parts of Palestine without, permi- without any permission. Near the dawn of the 20th century, a Paris newspaper journalist named Theodore Herzl, who was a Viennese Jew, covered a story about a French army officer named Dreyfus who was convicted for treason and he was sent to Devil's Island. Herzl was convinced it was all a sham and it was simply the continuation of a subliminal anti-Semitism that pervaded Europe. It set him off on a mission that would change the face of the world forever. Herzl was convinced that the only solution to what was now termed the world over as the Jewish problem was a political one. Jews had never been, they would never be accepted as equals in whatever nation that attempted to assimilate them. No, Jews needed their own land. Well, the logical place was ancient Israel, now called Palestine, which they had not occupied for close to 2,000 years. He worked diligently on what he believed was more than just a dream. Rather, it was a practical plan to create a nation of Jews. This was not religious fervor. Herzl was not a religious man. He was thinking in terms of he wasn't thinking in terms of God's promised land. He wasn't thinking in terms of Bible prophetic fulfillments. Rather, This was a pragmatic plan. It was brought about by sheer geopolitical reality. He planned and he wrote until he had a pretty good outline of what he thought needed to be done. And then he approached a a fabulously wealthy French Jew by the name of Baron Maurice de Hirsch. And he asked for support. He was sent away, disappointed. But that didn't sidetrack his vision. Herzl began making speeches to small groups of Jewish businessmen and to Jewish civic leaders. They were skeptical, bordering on the uninterested. It was when, however, he took his message to the common working Jews, it was then that he realized this passionate hope that lay deep in the heart of the Jewish masses that someday, someday, they would return to their ancient homeland, that God, the land that God gave their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, nearly 4,000 years earlier. In 1898, Herzl, with the help of several of the now-stalled Zionist movements, convened a conference in Switzerland with the purpose of uniting the Jews in an effort to create political power for their cause. 
The World Zionist Organization was created. Herzl as its first president. And he became the political spokesman for the Jews. He fearlessly predicted that within 50 years the Jews would have a nation of their own back in the land of Israel. The Jewish masses cheered him. The wealthy Jews rejected him. Well, Herzl was undeterred. So now he went to the leaders of the Ottoman Empire with a proposal. Give Jews, give the Jews Palestine in return for an enormous sum of money that would help the Ottomans with their severe financial crisis. Ottomans kind of liked the idea, but they counter-offered with Mesopotamia. Herzl approached the British government after refusing that offer, thinking that perhaps a different land might have to be accepted. The British generously offered Uganda. He took that offer to the Zionist organization and after bitter debates, the offer was rejected. He next went to the Pope for help. There was no support at all from the Pope for a Jewish homeland. Within a few months, Herschel was dead of heart failure. But his vision didn't die with him. Jewish families began immigrating to Palestine on their own. Family by family. Primarily from Russia and Romania to begin with. They started farms. There was no other way to make a living. Although most of them had little knowledge of agriculture. Baron Rothschild continued supporting these efforts and in 1882 immigration increased enough to worry the Ottoman Turks and they closed the door. Twelve years later another wave of Jewish immigration began resulting from renewed organized Russian persecution of the Jews. This time it was the Arab inhabitants of Palestine that protested the Jews arrival. In 1906 the French government reported that the total population of Western Palestine, the former Holy Lands area, was 60,000 souls. But it consisted of 40,000 Jews, 15,000 Christians, and 5,000 Muslims. The Arabs began raiding Jewish settlements. The Jews fought back. The Turks Turks armed the Arabs. The attacks increased. By 1914, over 85,000 Jews had found their way into Palestine and they were going to give their lives to stay there. Then World War I broke out and the conditions changed again. Now, during the First World War, the Jews living in Palestine found themselves under vicious attack from the Muslim Turks. Working with the British, the Jews established a spy network. A spy network, and through the net, uh, although the network was eventually uncovered and it was destroyed, the British had found an ally in the Jews, and so they now began to openly ask the Jews to help with the war effort. And the Jews responded favorably, but time was not on the side of, British, uh, of the British. Unknown to the citizens of England. The British were running out of ammunition to prosecute the war. 
Specifically, the problem was they couldn't produce sufficient gunpowder. This was due to their inability to produce enough quantities of a chemical that was critical for its manufacture, acetone. The British government secretly enlisted the help of a brilliant English Jew named Weizmann. He developed a method to synthesize acetone from horse manure, which they had plenty of. And he gave that to the British, and the rest, as they say, is history. After the war, the British approached Weizmann and they asked what they could do to repay him, and he replied, give my people a homeland in Palestine. The result was the Balfour Declaration in which the British government officially stated it looked favorably upon the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. By October 1917, the British attacked Palestine. A year later, all of Palestine came under British control. At the end of the war, England was, promised, was awarded Palestine by the war allies as a share of war booty, essentially. England kept its promise to Weizmann and it reopened the doors to Jewish immigration to Palestine. But during the 1920s, the Jewish population of Palestine grew pretty steadily, fueled primarily now by Jews that were emigrating from Poland. The Muslim Arab leaders, both in Palestine and in the surrounding nations, were very much against this steady increase in Jewish immigration. Tempers flared. Scattered incidents ranging from vandalism to street altercations and isolated killings began occurring more frequently. In August of 1829 in Hebron, the burial place of Abraham and Sarah, in an area we now call the West Bank, large bands of Arabs began indiscriminately killing Jews. When it was over 67 of the town's population of 800 Jews lay dead. The remaining Jews were relocated to safety in Jerusalem by England. Well, in 1933, Adolf Hitler arose and he came to power in Germany, which was in the midst of a devastating depression. And the Jews were promptly blamed for the country's economic disaster. More than 100,000 German Jews fled to Palestine fearing that the centuries-old cycle of their bearing the brunt of a Gentile nation's problems and forfeiting their lives as a result, it was occurring again. Well, then in April of 1936, various Arab factions put aside their difference and led by a Muslim mufti began a boycott against Jewish merchants. Any Jewish-made goods We have that happening again today, don't we? Within a few days, the boycott escalated into riots, into killings. The British, still rulers of the vast majority of the Middle East, came to the aid of the Jews. This further escalated the situation, whereby Arab terrorists began attacking British and Jewish settlements, schools, military facilities. By November of that year, the Arab Rebellion, it was called, was under control. But in 1937, the Peel Commission officially recommended partitioning Palestine into separate Arab and Jewish states. The Arabs again revolted. 
They were subdued in about six months. All remained relatively quiet now for the next several years. Well, in 1939, Germany invaded Poland and Britain slammed shut the door of Palestinian immigration by the Jews at the demands of Muslim Arabs who were now going to be very important allies in World War II. Over the next five years, Jewish blood overflowed the gutters of Europe. The ashes of millions of Jewish bodies filled the air of Germany and Poland in an event we now call the Holocaust. Jews from all over the world looked on in horror. Jews from Canada, the United States, Argentina, Brazil, North Africa, South Africa, Australia, almost every nation of the the world worried if their extinction was finally at hand. But in fact, it was not so. The war ended. The atrocities even worse than anyone had imagined. The stunned European Jewish survivors boarded steamships to any nation that would accept them. Most nations, including the USA, were not prepared to take the enormous wave of Jewish immigrants that sought sanctuary in a new home and turned most of them away. Nearly 40% of the entire world's Jewish population died at the hands of that German madman, Adolf Hitler. Well, in 1947... The British gave up their control over Palestine that they had obtained almost 30 years earlier and they turned it over gladly to the UN. Almost immediately, the UN officially partitioned the land. 80% of the land went to the Arabs and it became the territory of Transjordan, some of which later became what we know today as the Kingdom of Jordan. The remaining 20% of Palestine was to go to the Jews. Now the Arabs were infuriated. They didn't want one square inch of Jewish territory to exist anywhere in the Middle East. Now it's key to understand why the Arabs were so determined not to allow a Jewish state in a nearly unpopulated, completely desolate, largely deserted piece of land. The reason is Islam the religion of the majority of the population of the Middle East. One of the primary commands of Allah in the Muslim holy book, the Quran, is that once a Muslim has stepped foot on a piece of land, it is now claimed as Muslim territory for all time. It doesn't matter whether Muslims have ever been a majority or set up permanent settlements or whether Muslim leaders have ever governed the region. Simply the presence of a single Muslim is enough. Therefore, it is unthinkable to the Muslim mind that Jews or Christians could have a nation anywhere in the Middle East. On May 14, 1948, by a vote of the UN, Israel was officially reborn as a nation. One of the most important prophecies in Bible history was fulfilled. Isaiah 66.8 Who ever heard of such a thing? Who has ever seen such things? Is a country born in one day? Is a nation brought forth all at once? For as soon as Zion went into labor, she brought forth her children. Mind-boggling. On the 13th of May, Israel didn't exist. 
On the 14th of May, it did. Minutes after Israel announced their independence and statehood, the United States became the first nation to recognize Israel's sovereignty. Interestingly, within two days, the Soviet Union followed suit. But Satan wasn't about to stand idly by and allow the reappearance of the land of Yeshua's birth. According to the Bible, not long after Israel returned to their land would also come the return of Messiah, resulting in that old serpent's demise. This time Jesus isn't going to come as a peaceful sacrificial lamb. This time Christ is going to come to redeem the title deed to planet earth. And he will do it and he will take it forcefully away from Satan. Yeshua will execute judgment as the warrior king the Jews had always expected of a Messiah. But the terror that he shall rain down upon the enemies of God will have had no equal in times past. Well, Israel warned by the Muslim Arabs that if Israel declared statehood, a bloodbath would ensue, was attacked within 24 hours after the UN vote to recognize them as a sovereign nation. Five, count them, five Arab armies swept into Israel. But not before the Arab League appealed to thousands of Arabs living in the newly formed Jewish state to relocate temporarily out of harm's way. They were promised that as soon as their Muslim brothers quickly decimated the woefully inadequate Jewish army, which was really just a small militia, they could return and claim their Jewish neighbors' homes and land as their own. Approximately half of the Arabs living in Israel complied. They packed up a few things, their most precious possessions, and they hurried to the westernmost part of the kingdom of Jordan on the west bank of the Jordan River. As the five armies, five armies of Jordan, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq sat ready to annihilate Israel, the Secretary General of the Arab League got on the radio and ordered the war to begin with these chilling words. This will be a war of extermination. It will be a momentous massacre of the Jews which will be spoken of like the Mongolian massacres and the Crusades. The UN convened. They condemned the attacks. Israel fought back with what few weapons were at its disposal. It hung on tenuously while the UN sat and debated its fate. In early 1949, the Arabs were warned. If they did not stop the war and withdraw, the UN was going to take action. By the end of February 1949, hostilities ceased. The Arab armies left Israel. However, here marks the beginning of what the world in our time calls the Palestinian problem. The war had ended, but thousands of Arab men, women, and children that had left their homes, their jobs, their possessions, so that the Arab League's armed forces could attack Israel freely, well now they were left homeless, a people without a country. History has conveniently forgotten that the Israelites actually offered amnesty to these Arabs. They were ready to allow them to return lock, stock, and barrel 
to their homes in Israel. But the Arab League told Israel that they can't just accept those Arabs who left. No. Also, all Arabs in the Palestine region who wanted to relocate to Israel. They had to be included. The other untold part of the story is that no Arab nation would take in a single West Bank Arab refugee. Not one. Jordan, with great reluctance, did allow these Arabs to remain in the West Bank, in their West Bank territory, but only as refugees. They could not cross the border into, uh, which was uh, not the border, but cross the River Jordan to go into Jordan proper. By design, the Arab League made these former Israeli Arabs permanent refugees because they wanted sympathetic figures to use as pawns to move world opinion against Israel. So these West Bank Arabs found themselves living in a tent city. People without a nation, without a means to earn a living, without running water, without sanitary facilities, without hope. Well, in Ezekiel chapter 37, God had promised His chosen people that they would come back to the land He gave to them, never again to be removed. But Yeshua added another prophecy to that one. It was that Jerusalem would also become theirs once again, and when that happened, it would signal the coming of the end of the age. Or, as Christ says in Luke 21-24, Jerusalem will be trampled on by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, although Israel was a nation, their capital was Tel Aviv because Jerusalem had never been liberated. The holy city was still in the hands of Jordan and it was going to remain so for another 20 years. Well, in 1967, the Arab League once again informed the Arabs living in Israel that they wanted them to leave Israel and temporarily relocate. Why? Because the Arab nations were once again going to attack Israel. And further, these Arabs were once again told if they just leave their homes for a little while, when the war was over, which would just be a few weeks, they could go back and take their Jewish neighbors' homes from them and make them, make them their own. Several thousand more Israeli Arabs joined their now hopeful brothers on the west bank of the Jordan River. A few days later, on June 1st, 1967, the Arab nations surrounding Israel mounted a coordinated all-out attack using several battalions of tanks, infantry, and their combined air forces. The world watched as the tiny nation of Israel not only repulsed their attackers, they pushed them back so far, so rapidly, that Israel captured a tiny piece of land from Egypt called the Gaza Strip. They captured a hilly area at the northern tip of Israel belonging to Syria called the Golan Heights, from which the Syrians had for years shelled Israeli settlements. And also land on the west side of the Jordan River that belonged to the nation of Jordan, now called the West Bank. Perhaps most astounding, 
on June 7, 1967, at the culmination of the miraculous and infamous Six-Day War, Israeli military commander Mordechai Ben-Gurion stunned the world when he radioed to Israel's command headquarters these five precious words. We are at the wall. We are at the wall. Israel had taken Jerusalem. Their troops were standing at the western wall of the Temple Mount. The holy city, Jerusalem, in the hands of Gentiles since 70 A.D., was now once again controlled by Jews, just as Christ had predicted. Please take notice. The Bible, which has proved its trustworthiness time and time again, is abundantly clear that when that day happened, and it did, the countdown to the end had begun in earnest, and there's no stopping it. Again, what did Yeshua say in Luke 21? He said, Jerusalem will be trampled upon, occupied and controlled, by Gentiles, non-Jews, until the times or the age of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The purpose for Gentiles is brought to pass. Let's not dismiss this momentous event without being clear of its significance. The Jews regained control of Jerusalem in 1967 as God's sign that the era of the Gentiles has been brought to all of its fullness. It's done. I want to repeat this. The biblical sign that the time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled is the retaking of Jerusalem by the Jews. It has happened. It happened in June of 1967. Now, listen to this further warning in Matthew 24, verses 32 to 35. Christ says this, Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know summer's near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that the kingdom of God is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation, the generation that exists when the Jews regain control of Jerusalem, this generation will not pass, will not completely die out, until all these things, the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming, have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. The message for us is the kingdom of God is at hand. Satan is about to be bound up. And we are entering into a time which the Bible describes as bittersweet. Bitter because the powers of hell are responding now as never before to the prospect of their end. Primarily, it's happening in the form of worldwide terror and violence. Sweet, because true peace is at hand. Our Savior is coming back very soon. Centuries of waiting 
It's almost over. However, the bitterness must first be traversed before we come to the sweet. So prepare. Well, after the Six-Day War of 1967, another problem remained. What of the nearly one million Arabs still sitting in despair in the West Bank, now Israeli-occupied territory, formerly Jordan, in a wilderness, in a shanty town, with their hopes of destroying Israel in a shambles, no homes, no job, no services. It was a little bit before this time we began to hear of a terrorist leader named Yasser Arafat and a small terrorist organization called Black September. This group was the one who pulled off the infamous 1972 massacre of 11 Israeli Olympians at the Munich Olympic Games. you remember that? I'll never forget it. This high-profile attack, you see, was an attempt to recruit more members to its terrorist gang. Now, interestingly, although their primary objective was the extermination of Israel, their immediate goal was to overthrow the Jordanian government. See, this would give them both influence and a platform from which they could annihilate Israel. Well, after several years of terrorist bombings and shootings and and killings in Jordan by Arafat's terror organization, the Jordanian government was finally able to expel Arafat and his mob of murderers. But in reality, they were just exiled to the West Bank, where through extortion and terror, they became the warlords over the helpless million Arab refugees left languishing in the West Bank. And in time, Arab nations worked together and they realized they could use this refugee situation to their advantage. And so they began using their inexhaustible petrodollars in a massive misinformation campaign designed to gain sympathy for these refugees and to place the blame of their plight on Israel and the Jews. It's handy. It's always worked in times past. And so their plan worked to perfection. The history of the Middle East has now been rewritten. A group of terrorist thugs became legitimized as the government over the refugee camps of the West Bank Arabs. Black September changed its name to the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization. Perhaps the most vicious terrorist leader of our time was now deemed a statesman. And he was given the lofty title of chairman, Chairman Arafat. These same refugees, a generation later, are now appealing to the world to help them get back their nation of Palestine a fictional nation that has never in all the history of the world existed. This group of Arab refugees gave themselves a name, the Palestinians. Now, prior to 1967, they were known and considered as what they were, a collection of immigrants, of of wanderers, 
from various Arab and Muslim nations that came to Israel to find work in Jewish factories and in Jewish fields but stepped aside in hopes that their Arab brothers would kill all the Jews and then they could take their country away from them. Now, take note. This is such an irony. Prior to the Six-Day War, had mention been made of a Palestinian, which is a common expression, it only would have referred to a Jew living in the land. Those were Palestinians. Yet after 1967, these Arab Muslim refugees are suddenly deemed a nationality. A homogeneous people group who claims to have had a nation in that spot since time immemorial. It was the Roman Emperor Hadrian in the latter part of the first century AD that renamed the Holy Land to Palestine to insult, to discourage the remaining Jews living there and right up until 1967 no one would ever have dared to call the few scattered Arabs and Persians and Egyptians and Bedouins and other Middle Easterners living in the former Holy Lands Palestinians that would have been an an insult, a terrible insult every Arab and Muslim knew that a Palestinian was just another name for a hated Jew well in our time these counterfeit Palestinians are demanding that Israel give them the West Bank and Gaza as their own autonomous territories and give back the Golan Heights to the Syrians. Even more, they want Israel to give them Jerusalem as their Palestinian capital. Why do they want Jerusalem? Because Israel wants it. What's their claim to Jerusalem? that they built a mosque there. And it supposedly is a very holy Islamic city. It's curious. Jerusalem is never mentioned once in their holy book, the Quran. Not once. Today, 7 million people live in Israel. This doesn't count the disputed territories of Gaza, the Golan Heights, and the West Bank. More than 80% are Jewish, the remainder Arabs who are welcome to remain in Israel. These Israeli Arabs are granted full citizenship. They have full representation in the Israeli Knesset, the Israeli Congress, with elected Arab representatives. But we have to understand the goal of the Arab and the Muslim world, the goal of the Palestinians, has nothing to do with peace. Their goal is nothing short of the extermination of the Jewish people and the destruction of the state of Israel. And sadly, the Arab and Muslim world, the Palestinians and their leaders and the homicide bombers are nothing more than expendable pawns in the hands of the great adversary, Satan. See, Satan failed to stop the Messiah from being born in the Holy Land. He failed to stop Yeshua HaMashiach from His glory on the cross in Jerusalem. He failed to keep our Savior from rising from the dead out of that rocky tomb. And He's failed in keeping billions of fallen humans from turning to the one true God. The God of Israel. Yehovah Adonai Elohim through the saving grace of God's one and only Son. Yeshua, Jesus the Christ. 
the serpent's one last hope before the game is ended for all time is being played out right before our eyes today. It is the determined destruction of Israel and the Jewish people. It's God's plan, you see, that the Lion of Judah will come back for His people, descending from the clouds, His scarred feet touching down on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem from whence He left. The Bible makes it clear that at the end of the present age, the Lord will gather His chosen people from the four corners of the earth and place them back in Israel. It has happened. We are eyewitnesses. We are the historians to the final ingathering of the people that God calls His precious treasure. But don't harbor any illusions. Israel is going to endure much. They will be murdered. The world will be against them. And I'm quite positive that Palestinian state will happen any month now. But the ultimate outcome is certain. The Jews will survive. God will restore them to purity. They will not be leaving the Holy Land ever again. Now as believers in the Jewish Messiah, we have two duties before us. To bring the same good news that saved us to the Jewish people. To comfort God's people in real and tangible ways, standing with them no matter what. For essentially, as we now conclude our Old Testament survey, we have come full circle. We've come right back to God's stated imperative and warning in His covenant with Abraham nearly 4,000 years ago. In Genesis 12.3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who curses you. And by you, all the families of the earth will be blessed.